It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flip composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. the COVID-19 vaccine are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. We've got a great one in store. It's Friday, and so we're going to turn the uh, spotlight on uh, the world of entertainment in the third half of our three-hour tour with a musician and artist, Brett Newski, who's releasing a new book around breaking the stigma of... Uh, mental illness it's called it's hard to be a person defeating anxiety surviving the world and having more fun it's accompanied by a soundtrack as well and we'll talk about that and uh and lots more with brett newski coming up during the 11 o'clock hour or the third hour of the show and um then uh, let's see where are we at oh in the second hour of our three-hour tour. We're going to pack two guests into that hour. It's going to be a busy show today. Uh, we're going to talk first with uh, Shalin Gala, uh, Vice President of uh, International Laboratory Methods from PETA, and he's going to talk about a uh, multinational uh, military exercise co-hosted by the United States and Thailand that involves 29 participant nations called Cobra Gold. We'll find out what that's all about. We'll also learn about the role of artificial intelligence or AI in uh, the diagnosis and treatment of cardiac issues with cardiologist 
James Thomas from the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. But first, um, yesterday on the show, we talked a little bit about the Trump era. We're going to, uh, coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk with a social historian, political activist, and writer based in Michigan, Owen Symes, about his his debut book called He Was Our Man in Washington, which uh, looks at the the Obama years. And uh, we'll have, uh, let's see if there's anything... uh, Yeah, A History of the Obama Years from Owen Symes. That's straight ahead. Stay tuned. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my my guest this hour is a uh, social historian, political activist, and writer based in Michigan. He has a uh, a new book. It's his first. He was our man in Washington that takes a uh, look at uh, the presidency of Barack Obama from a historical perspective. The full title is He Was Our Man in Washington, A History of the Obama Years from uh, writer Owen uh, Symes, and he uh, joins me by phone. Hi, Owen. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, they say news is the first draft of history. Um, has there been enough time passed to really get a good historical look at uh, the Obama years, and 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 how is history judging the Obama years? Yeah, Tom. That's a good question. So. Uh, I don't know that enough time has passed to get like a full objective perspective, whatever we mean by that. Uh, but it is important uh, as a society for us to at least make that first attempt, right? Um, whenever we're really going to get beyond partisanship, uh, one way or another, you're going to have a bias, you know, whatever subject you're looking at. Uh, if I'm an Italian writing about the Roman Empire, I'm still going to have that nostalgia for that glory, you know, from days gone by, even though it's 2,000 years old. So same thing with the Obama years. Uh, we're far enough now, I think, that enough of the memoirs have come out, some of the vitriol has died a little bit, that we can at least begin to piece that together. So that that was kind of my objective, was to try and figure some of that out, take some of those first baby steps towards a, a legitimate, critical, but fair historical interpretation. As far as... Uh, uh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say... Um... What about the, the the racial implications of the Obama presidency? I remember when he was first elected, and and I talked to several people, um, especially older uh, black Americans who said they never thought they'd live to see that day. And I remember tearing up a little bit and thinking, you know, all this racial division is over now. And it turns out it really wasn't. And I have always suspected that that in addition to being the first African-American president, um, Barack Obama, because of that, he had to walk a very fine line politically to not make the first black presidency um, embarrassing in any way. Do, Do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah, that was a very conscious thing that he he tried to do. He didn't want to be seen as uh, like what you might want to call a special interest 
president. He wanted to be seen as the American president. And so in that sense, it, it really did kind of narrow what he considered uh, what was politically possible, right? Um, now, I, I criticize him for this in the book. I think that some of his estimations may have been incorrect, but it's a very legitimate worry on his part. Uh, you know, he wants to be the first black president, not the last black, black president. Um, <laughs> and you're definitely correct in that the the racial backlash uh, the racist backlash against him, I think, was stronger than he uh, realized it was going to be. And that, I think, speaks to the optimism of him as a person and also to the campaign that he ran, you know, that whole hope and change thing. As it turns out, the uh, the problems in American society, whether it's racism or economic inequality or, or you know, military adventures abroad, they're very intractable because they go back so far in American history. And that's one of the reasons I tried in this book to begin each chapter with uh, sometimes rather long introductions onto some of these topics, whether it's uh, the history of uh, African-American experience in, in this continent or whether it's, uh, you know, the, the fight for gay liberation or the Iraq war. You know, these things go back decades and decades, if not centuries or farther. And, and so it's, uh, I think, important, especially in uh, a contemporary history, to remember that these things have deep roots, long threads, complex histories, that especially when you're just getting the sound bites or the news articles, you, some, it's easy to forget that, right? So especially with the first black president, I felt that his administration needed that historical context before you could judge accurately, you know, what his strengths and weaknesses, his failures and achievements were. Race relations seem to have gotten worse during and since the Obama presidency. Was the election of a black president uh, an event that that woke a sleeping giant i think you could you could frame it that way pretty realistically yeah in the sense that for the longest time i i think that some racist white americans could at least look at the fact that they never had had to deal with very powerful black figures as kind of comforting we're still at the top of the food chain right now this uh the kind of countervailing idea that maybe black people should be allowed to vote or hold office or do any of the things that you might consider, you know, act, uh, important in an active civic kind of life, that backlash to that has been building since the civil rights era, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons that so many people in the South started voting Republican in the 60s and 70s was because the Democrats under Lyndon Johnson, as imperfect as they were, at least started to pass some legislation that was starting to rectify those issues. So you get this whole basically party switch where the, the Republicans went from being a non-entity in the South since the days of Reconstruction to dominating large swaths of that part of the country. Um, and I think the election of the first black president was, if not a wake-up call, then I think some people saw it as like a death knell. Uh, there's a quote in my book from Pat Buchanan after Obama won re-election in 2012 where he says that he literally wept at the death of white America. That's the the ferocity with which, the zeal with which some of these people viewed the election of uh, the first black president to an office that is inherently conservative. I mean, one of the things I noticed in researching the book was um, the office of the president is not a great uh, institutional vantage point from which to do large-scale reforms. Uh, you need to have the backing of Congress to get any of that stuff really done. That's something that FDR was very good at doing, right? In his 12 years in office, he managed to uh, twist enough arms and get enough support in Congress to pass 
long-lasting legislative change, whether it was the Wagner Act, Social Security Act, uh, what have you. Same thing with Lyndon Johnson, Medicare, Medicaid. The Great Society was built on um, those, those legislative initiatives, which makes them longer-lasting, harder to change and amend, as we've had problems with Medicare and Medicaid and what have you. But that's something that Obama had to really deal with after his first two years in office. He no longer had a decisive legislative majority. So after uh, Obamacare and after the uh, Recovery Act, he couldn't get a whole lot done domestically except through executive office. And as it turns out, that's a really limited way to issue reform. So, uh, but that's a large part of that is because of the racist backlash, um, which uh, gave kind of this sharp edge to what was already an increasingly partisan divide. You know, we saw that with the Clinton years. Um, you know, with the Monica Lewinsky scandal and everything, the Republicans were already gearing up to uh, to kind of throw the Democrats and the wolves whenever they could. So they were perfectly happy to do it with Obama. The main difference with Obama was even when Obama tried to turn to the right, as Clinton had done, remember Clinton passed, you know, welfare reform, quote-unquote. He passed uh, the 1994 crime bill. These very conservative bills, uh, he only managed to pass them when he you know, brought the Republicans to the table and basically co-opted their own ideas. So Obama tried to do the same thing, you know, take Mitt Romney's plan and incorporate that as a fundamental component of Obamacare, but the Republicans weren't having it. And of course, the difference is that it was a black man that was doing it this time. And so they uh, were a little more adamantine in their resistance, I think. Well, and I remember Mitch McConnell's uh, comment uh, soon after Obama's election that, um, the Republicans were going to work to make sure that this president wasn't uh, successful and that he would be a one-term president. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Tom. That's that's very true. And you can see that with, uh, like, for instance, the fight over the budget. Um, you know, one of the things that happened was, you know, Obama sent Biden to the Senate to try and negotiate some of these things, thinking that, well, Biden's been in the Senate 30 years, he knows these guys, he, he can negotiate with them from a position of strength and intimacy. And as it turns out, the Republicans were so recalcitrant that even after Biden gave them everything plus the kitchen sink, all the tax cuts and uh, cuts to Medicare and Medicaid that they could ever have wanted, they still said no because they felt that Obama would get the credit for a you know, what they wanted to be a Republican achievement. And so they said, no, we're going to wait until you're out of office, you know, and then we're going to take all the credit for ourselves. Um, now, they kind of shot themselves in the foot with that a little bit because, as it turns out, Obama was a two-term president and the Republicans weren't as successful as they uh, wanted to be electorally. So they honestly probably could have gotten a little more done uh, as far as cutting entitlement programs and, and gutting the working class if they had been a little less recalcitrant, um, oddly enough. So they kind of overplayed their hand a little bit, but they they were really cutthroat with those negotiations. Yeah, it was um, rather unusual because, again, comparing this to Clinton, uh, when Clinton was all about the balanced budgeting and stuff and austerity measures and things like that, Republicans eventually worked with him. Um, they didn't like it, but they kind of realized, well, okay, if we're going to get uh, you know tax cuts and uh, cuts to entitlements and everything. This is a way to do it while we don't have a guy in the White House, you know. More with social historian and author Owen Sines, straight ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with social historian and author Owen Sines, straight ahead. When you were um, laying this book out and in the process of researching uh, for writing this book, you wanted it to be an objective look at the Obama presidency with all the praise and criticism that that might invoke. Um, But what kind of information did you have access to, and how did you ensure that the sources you used for the book weren't, in fact, themselves biased? Yeah, great question. So I didn't have any kind of special access to, uh, you know, uh, secret archives or anything. I I, um, primarily worked off of any academic research I could find. So if someone had done a study on, for instance, Obama's uh, climate change policies, you know, they spent the last couple years kind of piecing together what Obama had done there. I use that. Um, The federal government provides, uh, through their records office, a lot of publicly available information. For instance, um, up until, I think up until uh, 2016, in fact, they have um, volumes of all of the president's public statements. So all of his speeches, all of his uh, question and answer sessions, things like that, goes to a high school and answers questions. They compile all of that stuff and then put them in these long PDF documents that you can poke through. Obviously, a lot of news articles and journalism. I relied pretty heavily on uh, a lot of contemporary journalism for uh, you know a lot of the details of the various things that I look at. Um, and then a lot of memoirs. Uh, it was kind of a slog, I have to admit. Political memoirs are not the uh, the most riveting reading a lot of times. Um, <laughs> and obviously, they're, they're biased in their own ways, but they'll often provide insight into at least what the politician uh, was either thinking at the time or how they want to present what their accomplishment was, which you can then you know deconstruct or take into account however you see fit. Uh, as far as watching out for biases and everything, um, as much as I uh, would like to think the book is objective, I recognize that it does have it, it has a you know my own perspective on things. Right? I mentioned in the introduction to the book, um, and I th- maybe again at the conclusion, I'm not really sure at this point, but I do try and uh, lay out that. I have a bias. I tried to, um, I didn't want the facts to speak for themselves because they never can. They have to speak through people, but at least, you know, gave them a, a fair shot to say, you know, something that, um, accurately. So I applied that same kind of methodology to the sources I was using, recognizing that any source is going to be biased, right? If I get a quote from Fox News, I have to recognize that they might have left something out of a longer quote in order to get, you know, a partisan point across. Same thing for MSNBC or, you know, an academic researcher talking about Obama and how that led to Trump or you know, whatever the case may be. Um, so I think you just have to look at the larger context of, of the institution the source is coming from. Um, are they leaving anything out, you know, to the best of your ability, you know, is what they're saying makes sense given all the other stuff you've read. Um, and then where... Uh, do the power relations play into it? So, for instance, when talking about climate change, obviously there's, uh, despite the best efforts of scientists around the world, there is still a debate in this country about whether climate change is even real. Now, as it turns out, the vast majority of scientists think that it is, and there's some disagreement about some of the details, because, of course, this is an incredibly complex topic with lots of moving parts, you know, whether you're talking about clouds or the icebergs or whatever else. There's a million variables to take into account, right? But what I noticed pretty quickly when researching it was most of the money that goes into um, 
feeding into the news media cycle or into a lot of public relations stuff, that all comes from the fossil fuel industry, which kind of leads me to believe that there might be an institutional kind of reason why that particular group of businesses might not want this status quo to change. So that kind of, it's, you know, it's not to be conspiratorial about it, but, you know, money does matter. So when a conservative says, follow the money, in parentheses, the UN is bad, they're right in the sense that, yeah, it's a good idea to see where people get their funding from. But then, of course, they don't follow their own advice and point out that while the UN uh, panel on climate change gets millions of dollars a year, fossil fuel companies pump billions of dollars a year into fighting against that um, reform effort. So, yes, there's money in climate change research, but there's a lot more money <laughs> in climate change denial. So those are the kinds of things I looked at when trying to understand the bias of a source um, and try and take it under advisement. And obviously, just because a source is biased doesn't mean it's not uh, very useful, right? Or, you know, has something that's very important to say. How significant was uh, the role of Joe Biden as vice president during the Obama's presidential years? Yeah, so that's not something I covered too much in the book itself. I did obviously research it, uh, but it ended up, I, I was trying to cover more like broad topics and the presidency as an institution. Um, so uh, the, the nitty gritty of how an individual decision uh, was made didn't always factor into things. But Biden himself did play a pretty significant role, as it turned out. Uh, for instance, when Obama wanted to try and uh, excise the U.S. from Iraq, you know, he had already um, inherited this mess from Bush. Bush had signed an agreement with the Iraqi government saying we're going to leave by 2011. So Obama had to figure out how to implement that. So Joe Biden was the uh, the guy that spearheaded that effort, right? Or with the Recovery Act, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars were set aside by Congress for, um, you know, green energy programs and uh, startups of various uh, sorts. And so he set Biden the task of allocating a lot of that money, making sure it wasn't spent, uh, you know, fraudulently or anything like that. Um, so those are two big things that Biden did pretty early on. He was also, like I mentioned earlier, kind of the point man for a lot of Obama's negotiations with the Senate, especially around the budget. Um, and then uh, he also had a hand in the appointees that Obama picked for his cabinet positions. Uh, he was very vocal in foreign policy debates, for instance, around how to handle Afghanistan um, and the kind of strategy they might want to implement to salvage that situation. Um, he wasn't always, his advice wasn't always heeded, but he uh, had an agreement with Obama, basically, that he would, have, at the very least, have the, the last word in a discussion. Whatever Obama's decision ended up being, you know, Biden was the number two man, so he needed to have that last word in a discussion before Obama said, okay, that's enough. I'm going to take a step back and, and think about it and make the decision. So he was a very active vice president, not on the level of Dick Cheney, for instance, who was basically a president in his own right, but that's very unusual. Most vice presidents are not like that. So on a historical scale, Biden was definitely on the uh, the more active end of things, definitely. Well, yeah, when you mentioned Cheney, he was almost a co-president. <laughs> exactly, which is very unusual. That's not something that tends to happen with the presidency, right? <laughs> That's true. How do you think uh, the Obama presidency will rank against other presidents historically? 
Interesting question. So typically, I think Obama tends to rank on the uh, the top end of the scale. You know, when you're looking at things like uh, the ability to, uh, you know, rally uh, the public towards something, or uh, not getting us into foreign policy messes, or passing uh, large scale domestic reform, things like that. Those are the kinds of things that historians often look at when they rank presidential greatness, um, or uh, greatness in the sense of influence, not greatness in the sense of morality. Um, or, you know, the degree of uh, public corruption or scandal, things like that. So, obviously, as a, as one who was able to rally the, the public to a particular piece of legislation or agenda, Obama probably doesn't fare very well there. Um, some of that, I think, is his own fault. You know, after he was elected in 2008, he kind of maybe abandoned is the wrong, a little bit too strong, but he definitely marginalized a lot of the volunteer kind of army that he had built up for the election. Um, so he wasn't really able, or I think willing really, to use that kind of grassroots um, mobilization to push more conservative Democrats, to say nothing of Republicans, uh, into promoting legislation that might be a little more radical or like fundamental as far as what it was trying to change. So for instance, with Obamacare, Obama wasn't very interested at, from the get-go in the public option or in expanding Medicare to include more people. Uh, he was much more about trying to find a market-based solution. That's a much more conservative or Republican way of doing things. So, you know, I think Obama didn't really uh, feel the need to galvanize the public in that way. But also, we have to remember, again, that racism and partisanship played a huge role in blocking a lot of his subsequent um, you know, projects like climate change legislation or what have you. So it would have been pretty hard for him to get beyond that. On the other hand, uh, you know, in foreign policy, for the most part, he didn't really get us into too many messes. I think Libya is probably the worst thing he did uh, as far as destabilizing and uh, having kind of unintended consequences. That was a almost complete disaster as soon as uh, Gaddafi was out. Um, but, you know, he kind of helped salvage Iraq. He did his best in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, he didn't get us into any ridiculous trade war with China, things like that. So he probably fares pretty well there. And a lot of it depends on, you know, your, your partisan perspective. If you're a liberal who thinks that the market needs a little bit of uh, regulation, but not too much, uh, that America should be, if not the world's policeman, then at least, uh, you know, nearby whenever an event happens or a crisis happens, I think Obama fares pretty well. Um, his administration was also relatively scandal-free. You know, there were a couple things here and there, um, but nothing on the scale of uh, Reagan or uh, Clinton or um, W. Bush or Trump, obviously. Um, you know, if you're a conservative, you might not like some of the uh, more progressive social stuff, like uh, supporting the uh, marriage equality or getting rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, things like that. But I think if you take an honest look at his foreign policy, it was relatively muscular. You know, he expanded the war on terror into um, Africa, notably. Uh, he obviously uh, broadened the conflict in Afghanistan, sending hundreds, 100,000 troops there. Um, you can maybe criticize what he did in Iraq, although his hands are a little bit tied there by the legacy that Bush left him. Um, and economically, you know, he continued what Bush started, bailing out large financial institutions and trying to protect the market from its own excesses. Um, but he was fundamentally capitalist in that respect. So uh, economically, foreign policy-wise, I think even Republicans have to give him some credit. 
Yeah, you mentioned that, you know, he was, his presidency was relatively scandal-free. We didn't see, um, you know, sex scandals or um, political scandals like we've seen in in the White House in other administrations. Um, you think he'll get credit for that, for having been basically a pretty good uh, moral center? That's an interesting question. I think that might depend on if we can regain some national stability. So one of the the drawbacks, I think, possibly of the Obama administration is that because the change that he managed to institute was very conservative, um, you know, it was trying to uh, get back to a status quo like the the pre-Bush years, like a Clinton kind of status quo, um, as opposed to, hey, we have to radically rein in the banks or radically curtail our military adventures or things like that. Um, so in, in kind of helping the status quo to kind of, uh, you know, limp back into the boxing ring, so to speak, um, the danger there obviously is that in not doing the more radical change, you just open the door to something worse. Now, if we, if under Biden we can get back to a legitimately, you know, pre-W. Bush status quo, and most people like that, then I think Obama will be seen as um, a step in the right direction. You know, yeah, this guy he didn't get all he wanted to do, uh, but a lot of that was out of his control and was part of the kind of the racist backlash. But he made a pretty good effort. You know, I can see people saying that. Now, if things continue to deteriorate and get more partisan and more uh, hyperbolic and um, more desperate as the economy continues to, to falter, um, then I think Obama will be seen as, as a little bit weaker. You know, well, he should have done more because look how uh, his attempts have tailspun into Trump, into a weak Biden, into whatever comes next. Um, so in that sense, I, I think the scandals will seem kind of, the, la the lack of scandals will seem kind of small potatoes amidst you know, worsening situation. So I think it depends if things get better or worse, um, how that part of his legacy will be viewed. And and you mentioned a, a weak Biden. And to what degree is the Biden presidency um, Obama 2.0? So far, it seems like it's to a pretty strong degree. Right? Uh, Biden has said that he uh, doesn't support any kind of Medicare for all legislation, which indicates to me at least that he's pretty wedded to the legacy of Obamacare and that if we just have to tweak that and it'll be good enough, you know, uh, why go beyond the Affordable Care Act and do something radical when the Affordable Care Act just needs to be given a chance to work properly? This idea that markets can solve health care, even though health care is uh, kind of different than buying a television, it's not exactly a consumer good. If you're having a heart attack, you can't shop around like you go to Walmart, you know, um, but that's, you know, it's kind of beside the point here. Um, so in healthcare, very wedded to the Obama administration. As far as foreign policy goes, I think he's just trying to build off of the uh, uh, the pivot towards China was what they recalled it under the Obama administration. I don't focus on it in my book because I wanted to focus more on the war on terror, but Obama was trying to extricate American foreign policy emphasis from the Middle East where he thought it was being wasted and more towards East Asia where, you know, obviously China has become a competitor to uh, U.S. global preeminence. So I think Biden is building off of that. He's, I think he's more bellicose about it. He talks much more about fighting authoritarianism and uh, you know, it kind of seems like he almost wants to start a cold war with China. In that sense, he's building off of Trump, actually. 
Um, but that did begin under Obama. He, his rhetoric, Obama's rhetoric was a little more conciliatory, um, a little less bellicose, but the, the emphasis uh, towards China was still there uh, in nascent form. Um, and then as far as the economy goes, um, Biden is uh, a capitalist just like Obama was. He still has a faith in markets to solve most problems. Um, so I don't expect to see anything super radical uh, from his administration in that regard. Um, and even something like uh, the, the stimulus bill that's being debated, you know, as, as expensive as it sounds like it's going to be, that's still Keynesian economics, you know, priming the pump, stimulating the economy uh, federally when there's not private demand. But the ultimate goal of that, as uh, conservatives tend to forget, is to allow the government to take a step back after that stimulus has been done and allow a revitalized private market to take the initiative again. So it's not like Biden is trying to nationalize industries or things like that. He's just trying to give a helping hand to these faltering private institutions, um, which is another Obama legacy. And that's something that uh, I don't think Biden is going to change on. Uh, same thing with climate change, you know, trying to get private corporations to uh, do the right thing on their own, as opposed to mandating from the top down that these things need to change. Um, so there's a there's a faith that these corporations um, will see reason as opposed to see profit. Um, I'm not convinced, but I think Biden is. And that's a legacy of, of his years in the Obama administration as well. Now, the book's called He Was Our Man in Washington. Oh, and what do you mean, our man? Who's the our in the title? Sure. So uh, when... Uh, Obama recently took office in 2009. He met with a number of uh, bigwig financial executives, some of the top guys in the country. And after that interview, uh, a journalist interviewed one of these guys and asked him, how was the meeting, right? How did this go with the president? Something I'm rather curious about. And this guy basically responded that, um, you know, Obama was, uh, he's on our side. And he literally said, you know, I think this guy, he's our man in Washington. Um, and I thought that quote was pretty telling because this is coming from a guy who should be shaking in his boots, right? The financial sector helped ruin the American economy. They did all this stuff that if it wasn't illegal, it was only legal because they lobbied to have the laws changed, right? So you would think that a president elected on a popular mandate to help fix the economy and bring some kind of hope and change to the country would, you know, hold these guys to account in some way, shape, or form. Um, but during the meeting, Obama said something to the effect of, uh, you know, I'm the only thing standing between you and the pitchforks. I'm here to protect you. Um, now, you can take that nefariously, like, oh, he's in bed with corporations. You can be a little more uh, charitable and say, okay, well, you know, he understands the necessary role that financial institutions play in the economy, and so he doesn't want to blow that up. But either way, uh, he was not the enemy of the banks, and, you know, the, the financiers certainly didn't see him as an enemy even if publicly they were a little bit critical of some of his policies. So I thought that was a really provocative title because you can go into it thinking one thing, you know, oh, he was a socialist president. He was all for the, the welfare recipients or however you want to phrase it. Um, and then you can kind of come out of it, oh, wait a second. He was actually a lot more friendly to the big businesses than I had realized, you know, or any, any other large institution you want to take aim at. Owen, what made you decide... Um for your first book that it was time to take a historical look at Obama? 
Um, honestly, it was the 2016 election. Um, I, like many people, was uh, kind of surprised at the uh, the result. I think even most conservatives expected that Hillary Clinton would win. Um, and so after we got our first reality TV star president, I um, started taking a look at the administration that came right before him because I thought maybe in this recent history I might find some answers as to uh, why our politics took such a strange turn. Um, and in the middle of researching that, I kind of noticed that Trump had sucked all the oxygen out of the room, so to speak, and no one was really writing about Obama. So as I compiled this information, it occurred to me, well, you know, maybe I could write this book since no one else seems to be doing that. And this stuff is interesting and important and it needs to be written. So I guess I'll be the guy to give it a shot. You talk about the Obama legacy in the introduction for the book. Is the Obama legacy fully formed yet? Um, I would say no, because just like with how he came into office with uh, a lot of historical context and baggage and, and inertia from these institutions that he had to deal with, so too uh, the decisions that he made are still rippling forward in time. Um, so, you know, we talk about Libya as one of his biggest foreign policy failures. That's just, that's still burning itself out. Libya is still racked with civil strife. Uh, its neighbor Mali ha almost fell apart as a result of what happened in Libya. So they're still recovering. Uh, you know, the war on terror in Africa is still expanding. It expanded under Trump, and I'm sure it will continue under Biden. Uh, most of that is is difficult to uh, to suss out because so much of it is covert operations. So it's not very easy to report on that stuff. Um, but you know, those conflicts are going to ripple out in their own little ways as well. Um, his pivot towards China is still going to ripple outwards because we haven't really seen how that's going to get, um, how that's going to find maturity under Biden, uh, what that really means as far as uh, what does this conflict mean? Is it competition? Is it actual war? Is it just trade wars? Uh, is it going to be espionage? Like what, what's going on there? So a lot of these things are still kind of being sussed out. Um, same thing with uh, Obamacare. You know, states are still issuing their Medicaid expansions as Republican states, you know, very slowly implement it. Um, I think it was at about half when Obama left office. A couple of states have added themselves to that list since then. Um, so the, the consequences of that are still being felt and still being shaped. So I think we're, we're starting to get a pretty decent picture. But as these ripples keep uh, expanding and then new variables come into play that change their trajectory, um, you know, we're going to maybe have to reassess uh, here and there as those things develop. More with social historian and author Owen Sines.
Tom Sumner program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque riverway. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. 
The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Summer Program.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with social historian and author Owen Sines straight ahead. Well, it's a fascinating book. Uh, The book is uh, called He Was Our Man in the White House, A History of the Obama Years, and it takes a real deep dive on a lot of topics, including war, the economy, health care reform, civil rights versus law and order, climate change, and citizens on the margin. And as I said, we've just sort of scratched the surface talking about it with the author Owen Symes. Owen, um, we've got to wrap it up, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where where they can find out more about what we've been talking about and about you and your work, past, present, and, and future. Um, obviously, the book is a great place to start. Uh, again, it's called He Was Our Man in Washington, A History of the Obama Years. But uh, do you have a website, Owen? Yeah, so they can find more information about the book uh, specifically at john, J-O-H-N, huntpublishing.com, and then just type in the book. Um, as far as me uh, personally, they can follow me on Twitter at, at Owen Symes, O-W-E-N-S-Y-M-E-S, uh, and they can check out my Facebook page at Owen D. D. Symes. Um, regular Owen Symes is a guy in New Zealand, so he stole that name before I could get to it. But um <laughs> Um, but yeah, those are the two easy ways to follow me. Uh, and like I said, johnhuntpublishing.com to check out the book. Um, they can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, IndieBound, if they want to go through a local bookstore, which I always recommend. I don't think Jeff Bezos needs more money. But if they have to get it on Amazon, that's the way it is. Well, Owen, thank you so much for spending this time with me and uh, and our listeners uh, this morning. And um, I, maybe we'll get a chance to talk again. Um, what's What's next for you? Yeah, so right now I'm looking at the history of policing in the United States. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there, you know, individual uh, topical surveys about, you know, the state police in Pennsylvania or the war on drugs. Um, not a lot of stuff that kind of ties it all together. You know, it talks about the development of policing, its history, how it's viewed in the media, how it's presented to people in fiction. Um, so I'm looking into that, maybe trying to see if I can piece together some kind of, uh, you know, general survey of that topic. So it's a very broad topic, um, but very interesting at the same time. Well, Owen, thanks again, and keep up the good work. Yeah, my pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. Take care. Again, that was uh, Owen Symes. He is the uh, author of a new book called He Was Our Man in Washington, A History of the Obama Years, and we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <music>
looking out my window Looking way down on the streets below Looking out my bedroom window, y'all Way down on the streets below The message from my baby Telling me she don't want to live it with me no more She sent me an email on my computer a Text on my telephone Anyway, she can get in touch with me to tell me she wasn't coming home. No, looking out my window, I'm looking down on the streets below.
working way down on the streets below. Oh, I got the message from my baby. to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell there is a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if you got a better cough in your arm and if you got a better <coughs> now back in 1918 influenza had its run but half the docks were busy overseas with world war one today we have mass media and scientists to say if you don't want this virus well then stay six feet away super damn important that we practice isolation because we are asymptomatic while it's an incubation will overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation it's super damn important that we practice isolation If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. You pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.